Happy Banned Books Week to all who celebrate. Yes, you may have heard some scare quotes there. Some of these books are scary and earn reader caution. Yet some people think that you'll be so happily scared by hearing that these books are banned that you will want to read them, support them automatically. About this trope, we have several questions. Aren't some books really horrible for some or most or all readers? If so, is this really a matter of whether these books should be banned? And if so, who should ban them from which kinds of readers and why? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the often censored podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm e. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And if I say that that is a banned book, does that mean you should buy it? <laughs> Sorry, I had some duct tape on my mouth. I'm Zachary Russell, and this is episode 183, Are Some Books So Scary That They Must Be Banned? Every sponsor of this podcast, by the way, today has suffered the terrible scourge of the censorship regime because we want to love our sponsors. We want to sell their books. I'm going to have a little fun with this one, uh, but it is a serious topic. At the same time, uh, I do see some retail shtick going on with the whole banned books complex in addition to the political applications of this. Uh, Zach and I have been wanting to do an episode about this for a while. And in fact, I think we incidentally set it up, uh, Zach, when you went a few weeks ago to this uh, event at a library uh, where people were holding up signs outside uh, saying read banned books or don't ban the books. And then Marion Jacobs and I were talking a few episodes ago about JK Rowling and a lot of the attempts by different kinds of people uh, to ban or restrict, which is a fairer word, uh, some of her books as well. Yeah, that event was put on by Brave Books at a local library here uh, where Kirk Cameron spoke and I, I saw him from a great distance away because it was so crowded. And yes, there was quite a bit of irony, Stephen, because the protesters that came to protest against the Brave Books were themselves wearing books saying you should read banned books, don't ban books, etc. And yet they are the ones saying don't read these books by Brave Books. So yeah, try to wrap your hand around that. I don't know. I, I couldn't quite figure it out myself. I think that the morality here is often confusing. I think that unfortunately, one of the tropes that is behind all of this is the implication you should read banned books. Well, that there is a statement of moral obligation, and I think it's based on something that ought to be a foreign thought to Christians of goodwill that you should do something because someone bad out there doesn't want you to. Uh, that appeals to this sort of uh, rebellious interest. It's kind of a uh, a really bad version of the whole yeah, we're Americans, we rebel, we have freedom, we don't let anybody tell us what to do or where to go. That, of course, is an understandable impulse. Uh, sometimes it's sinful, a lot of times it's sinful. Uh, other times it makes sense. If a bad guy is telling you what to do, or you've been abused, or you grew up in a bad environment, then uh, that instinct can make a lot of sense. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's no way to live, and ultimately, I think it turns you into a culture warrior, the bad kind, uh, rather than a happy reader. We err on the side of happy readers here with just a little dabbling in the culture war at Lorehaven, uh, only so much as we need to do to get by, but it is not a way to live out the rest of our days in eternity. So we're just going to touch on this and then move on. This isn't going to be the anti-band books or band books podcast. Getting ahead to the concession stand there, but first we must stop to buy a book that uh, for the sake of uh, the sponsor, we'll just go ahead and say it's it's a banned book. The Mermaid's Tale from Enclave <laughs> Publishing has been don't pre-banned <laughs> by somebody you don't like and therefore go out and buy dozens of copies of this new release <laughs> from our top sponsor. Lachlan Adair has never fit in. 
The legs that she inherited as a result of her great-great-grandmother's curse make it impossible for her to belong under the sea. When her niece is also born without a tail, Lachlan is determined to save her from similar rejection by sending her to school in the only place in the undersea realm where legs are acceptable, the Lost Island of Atlantis. Enclave Escape presents The Mermaid's Tale, Chronicles of the Undersea Realm, Book 1, by L.E. Richmond, an exciting young adult adventure. Today on sale, October 10th, 2023, wherever great YA books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon.com, in digital format on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. You can get more information in our show notes for episode 183 or see all the info about all of our sponsors at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, end sponsor text. It says they're through libraries everywhere. What a great setup. And again, I will note that someone you don't like, someone really obnoxious, someone who votes the way that you would not vote is trying to get this book banned right now. So make sure you get out there and get the Mermaid's Tale for Enclave Publishing. Okay, that's a joke. That is absolutely a joke. Libraries love Enclave books. Uh, Lots of people love those. It's great Christian-made fantasy. Uh, That makes me hungry. So we're going to stop by our concession stand and just note that the official week that just concluded, I think last week called Banned Books Week, uh, is apparently started by the American Library Association, which I will note that as of this date is being led by an out and proud Marxist activist. So that really somebody you want to listen to. That could be an ad hominem if we didn't have other reasons, but we do. And these folks, I think, do have reasons for what they do. Uh, We're not so much talking about the official event here, but it's worthwhile knowing that, yeah, some people have gotten all excited and tried to ban books that really shouldn't have been banned from certain types of readers, like Huckleberry Finn, Fahrenheit 451, or Animal Farm, or 1984, which we talked about on the podcast uh, last fall. Some readers may not need to read those books. I wouldn't give them to an eight-year-old. Uh, But some readers do, and I think those books do belong in public libraries. So that is a reasonable thing to say, hey, some people have tried to ban these books. Isn't this kind of funny? This is a great idea to promote reading, you know, make you feel like you're uh, kind of a little bit of a rebel in a black leather jacket riding around on a motorcycle while you're reading banned books. I get it from a marketing standpoint, and I get it from a public advocacy standpoint. There's some good beliefs at the heart here, including this basic idea that, yes, a wise, mature reader ought to expose themselves to ideas that may challenge them, that they may not agree with. And Christians of goodwill who have grown up into maturity in their faith understand that, yes, we do and should, if we are called to it, should engage with ideas that we don't agree with. It's part of loving our neighbors. It's part of sharing the gospel in a world that disagrees with the gospel. I think here, at least for my part, Zach, I'm going to speak more to the marketing shtick. Uh, Some of the more populist level versions of read banned books that I see Uh, that kind of turns into some silly pleas like this one I saw on the Twitters. Uh, It said, uh, so-and-so's bookmobile event at MLK Library in Washington, D.C. We are giving away banned books with great partners. Repeat after me. I read banned books. I read banned books. I read banned books. Chant the NPCs on their way to the bookmobile. Or there's a more benign example here. Uh, these are the most banned books from public libraries and schools in the U.S. And it's Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, you know, classic stuff. Wind Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Lord of the Flies, uh, the aforementioned Animal Farm, Scarlet Letter, Fahrenheit, all that stuff. Uh, as I mentioned, like, it makes sense to unban those titles if they have indeed been banned. And yet, of course, uh, the argument still holds here that these books maybe were t- somebody tried to ban them at the first public library of Podunk, Idaho, or whatever, 
Does that mean that the book is banned nationwide? No, of course not. You can still get it on Amazon. You can go into half price books, the store we have in the United States, and you can get those books. People are doing a little what you call semantic overreach with the term banned. It's a little bit clickbait. It's a little bit inflammatory. And so I think we got to watch a term like that with the implications that you get if you're not careful. For one thing, there's kind of a, a very quick linguistic hack because the word banned almost sounds like the word burned. And so you get in your censorship implications, you get in this idea of bad people probably wearing hoods or something, uh, burning the book in the back because it's too dangerous and they can't let the truth get out. You know, that's why they tried to stop uh, Orwell's 1984, because, you know, it's telling tales about the future dystopia. And we can't let that happen because we want the future dystopia because we're bad government, we're banning books. I think that that's an association that we just need to be aware of that some of this marketing push will make if we're not careful. Uh, words like these are often used as shortcuts to hack the imagination. And we're about imagination here, properly understood. So can't help pointing that out. Also, I think when we say banned in this episode more positively, like I'll just go ahead and use the word. I really mean that to be more restricted on a limited basis. In other words, you know, your parent maybe caught you reading the book, which wasn't a bad book but it was 2 a.m. and you were supposed to be sleeping or it was you know, noon and you were supposed to be working on your math homework because you're homeschooled. So your parent takes away the book and now you can't read it. It's a banned book now. You know, I think some of that emotion figures into it as well. Somebody you didn't like took that book away. You know, That was a bad person. Also, I think some of this banned books shtick does get political. I think there are some people who are doing this on purpose so they can sell you truly bad books, and we'll talk about that later, or sell your kids truly bad books. We will talk about that in a moment. Uh, but I think that the most benign reading of this, uh, Zach, is that it's not someone trying to push propaganda or porn or something in every case. It's basically clickbait. It's just a little inflammatory rhetoric, and so it bears, uh, bears addressing here. Uh, any thoughts, Zach? Any other snacks uh, before we get started here? Yeah, a couple of things. So when we talk about book bans, I think it's really important to talk in clear terms about what is going on. If a parent says to a teacher, I don't want my kid reading that book. Can you please assign a different book or can I choose a different book? That is not banning a book. No. That, that is a parent standing up for their rights to choose their child's education. Zach, whose child is it? The teacher's child or the right. parent's child? Right. Now, if a parent says to the teacher, no one in this class should read this book. No one in this school should read this book. Okay, that's a little different scenario. We'll get into that in a little bit because, spoiler alert, that's just called democracy when we de debate about these things. But is the book being kicked out of school? Well, I guess so. Is it completely unavailable for anyone else to read? Well, no. People can, lots of different ways to get books. So, we're just talking about parents deciding what their kids and, and what the community should be talking about. Because here's a hard thing, Stephen. This is very personal for us, Stephen, because our youngest daughter right now was assigned a book in class that our older daughters read and enjoyed. She's reading it or being assigned to read it at a much younger age than our older girls. So that's kind of strike number one. Strike number two is that the book deals with themes of death. And as you know, from our last podcast episode, we are in a season of mourning from my sister's passing just barely a month ago. So as her parents, we just decided the book's fine. We don't normally object to this book, but number one, she's too young. And number two, it's just not a great season for her to read this book. Now, here's the hard thing. 
when they're having class discussions about it, she has to leave the room or wear headphones or something and block it out and listen to something else or go to another classroom. So that makes it challenging. Well, a lot of parents don't want to do that. So they'd rather just no one have to read it. Well, again, is that banning the book or is that trying to have unity within a classroom? Well, we can, we can debate that in a little bit. But let's just be clear about what we're talking about. I will say one other thing with a kind of a concession here. We, we talked before about the Twitter files and things like that, which is where the government reached out to executives at Twitter and said, please shadow ban these people or these terms or these phrases or these topics. And Twitter was happy to comply. Now that Twitter is under a new owner, all of these communications have been revealed. And the censorship kind of goes in one direction. And the same people that were pushing for that censorship are the ones saying we shouldn't ban books. (laughs) So it seems a little inconsistent to me. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is if we believe in free speech, if we believe in free press, then we shouldn't ban books. But again, it really comes down to what we mean by banning books. Do we mean not allowing anyone to read that book anywhere ever? That's what I think it means to ban a book. Just because you have freedom of speech doesn't mean I'm forced to listen to you. But freedom of speech means no one can shut you up. Like you should get a platform of some kind to speak. You should be able to publish your thoughts. When we talk about censorship, we say, hey, it's fine if you don't want to listen to someone or change the channel. Uh, You don't necessarily have the right to tell them not to speak or they can't have that show. So I, I think we have to kind of look at the whole picture here. We do. And it starts with chapter one, which I've called some books are actually harmful to many readers. Zach, I think you alluded to that when you mentioned this idea that some materials are so toxic, so terrible that we really as a society and maybe even with laws, depending on where you live, might together decide, you know, there's really no reason to let this spread. This stuff is of very little redeeming value. Maybe somebody in a room should study it somewhere. Like, for example, uh, books by uh, terrible German dictators, for example. But do we really need this on a library shelf, uh, much less on a school library shelf? And I do want to avoid you know, specific cases that may be in the news by the time you faithful listener are hearing this show. But my guess is these debates are just going to keep right on going uh, relating to public libraries and the public schools. So there's just no way to talk about this without talking about that as well, I would distinguish uh, these genuinely harmful books from the books that you mentioned, Zach. Like you said, for example, with that uh, one book that deals uh, with topics of grief and such, like your older kids read that, no issue, uh, but it's not necessarily appropriate for your younger child right now. Well, that's a degree removed then from is a book maybe appropriate for older readers, but not appropriate for all or most younger readers. Uh, There's this idea that people are maturing, uh, that there are some books that are just not right for an eight-year-old. They can't understand it. Uh, It may have some challenging content in there, yes, but maybe they get older and they can understand it. Uh, Some people would describe certain books of the Bible that way. Song of Solomon, for example. Uh, An eight-year-old shouldn't be reading that, which is why it's always pretty funny when you get a children's Bible, you know, with little precious moments characters on the front. And then you open up the Song of Solomon and we're talking about climbing up and grabbing hold of fruit trees, you know, like the older readers go, and you know, if you're a teenager who's a Christian, you read that and you go, and uh, you're being kind of silly and inappropriate. It's appropriate for older readers who get to that point in their lives, but not for younger readers. But what about books then uh, that don't just describe some sin or books of the Bible that describe uh, acts that are meant to shock us into repentance? 
What about books that are actually promoting evil as if it's good? Well, that's what we're talking about more. Uh, But back real quick uh, to the biblical basis, which I think a lot of our listeners may have in the back of their minds, maybe because they grew up in a sheltered uh, type of Christian environment or family, Uh, maybe your private school overdid it with the censorship or you feel like they did. Uh, And now you get a hold of the Bible, I think rightfully so, and you realize that there are very hard truths in there that a lot of people call, call harmful, but that are not harmful. For example, the whole concept of God's law. God's law is intended to be scary. It is intended to spook us, to frighten us uh, as we look at ourselves, as we look at our world, as we look at the rebellion that is in our hearts, as we look at our own deadness in transgressions and sins. Uh, people may say that's harmful. No one should ever read that. And you know, some edgelord atheists may open to a random page of the Bible and read about some act of killing and say, you want to give this to six-year-olds? Well, who's the book banner now? You know, uh, no Christian ultimately, consistently, believes in ignoring evil, in, in, in blocking anyone from reading any descriptions of sin. I mean, on, on this podcast and at Lorehaven, we will talk about books even this month because it's spooky season that have some dark content in them. Uh, so you can't pin this bun back on us and say that we're trying to censor this content, uh, anything that even mentions sin or racism or the Nazis or anything like that. I mean, literally right now, we're doing a book quest in the Lorehaven Guild called Koenig's Fire. Some people may want to ban that book. Uh, We had a commentator we read at the end of last week's episode, Uh, but others recognize that there is a place for this content for mature believers. So it's a stereotype to pin this back on Christians as if we are the book banners. Uh, We oppose, the consistent discerning Christian opposes that kind of sentimentalism. But we should also oppose the sentimental idea that you should read banned books as if books are not harmful. Books are great. Books have great potential for accomplishing good. It's logical then to assume that a book with such potential could also be turned around toward evil, toward actual harm. Uh, You can't just be an activist and say, well, the book shows reality, therefore everybody should read it. Like, no, that's absurd. That's sentimental. Uh, The book may be exploring some historical reality that maybe you need to talk about to young children, uh, but you don't necessarily need to give uh, an extremely accurate or detailed account of what happened in a concentration camp to a young children. That's what we do in our book quest. We say this is appropriate for readers age X and up. We do want to fence the book quest a little bit, uh, make it clear uh, for whom this book is intended. I want to go to something you've said about harmful books. Because I I think this is part of the debate too, right? Can a book be harmful? Well, harm in what sense? Okay. So it's not going to physically harm you uh, unless someone throws it at you. It could have some really bad ideas. It could have shocking content. It could have images you don't want in your mind. It could instruct you to do sinful behaviors. So I, I think we have to be clear about what we mean when we say harmful. Absolutely. Because... You know, there's this whole other idea of harm nowadays. That harm Dignitary is that, harm, yes. Yeah, that makes you feelings. uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Not talking about that. Anything that just challenges your worldview and gets you to think differently. But, you know, I'll just go and say, if we're going to talk about harmful ideas in books, uh, a very popular harmful idea is that, hey, kids, you can be born in the wrong body. Poison. And Abject if you poison. take these drugs or do these surgeries, you'll be free. You'll be happy. All your troubles will go away. Oh, and parents, if you don't do this, uh, your kid's going to die. Like, this is an extremely harmful idea. It's being pushed by a giant billion-dollar industry. Let's be really clear on that. 
And the books that are supporting this are literal propaganda. And here's the funny thing, Stephen. Books that promote that are being banned by school boards, by the school board meetings, where parents go to the meeting and read this book aloud and show the graphic pictures to the board members that maybe aren't aware. And parents are getting thrown out of board meetings for reading the books that their children are having to read in class. So let's talk about another irony there. These school boards, and I've linked to one uh, below, but you can quickly find videos of this, of parents saying, hey, why is my kid having to read this book? And they start reading from it. And the uh, you know board president slams their gavel and says, oh, you're out of order. You can't read that in here. And they're like, I can't read that in here. Why is my 13-year-old having to read this or my 10-year-old? There are certain magazines, I'll say, a kid cannot buy at the local Quickie Mart or whatever, or at the bookstore. So what is the reason why people want these books in classrooms? Like, it, it, What's the whole point of it? If you really dig into not, not just this subset of books, but other books that not only make people uncomfortable, but make them... Because again, there's a difference between a book that makes you uncomfortable and a book that teaches you terrible ideas. Okay. Here's another terrible idea. Because of the group you belong to, based on the color of your skin, you're guilty of crimes. Now, notice I didn't say what color of skin, because this can go in any direction, frankly. There's always been that harmful idea that you belong to a group based on your skin color that's guilty of certain crimes. So books that teach this to children are harmful. Now, that's very different than a book that just chronicles someone's tragic past right? People experience all kinds of discrimination. They record those experiences in a book. You can read about them. That doesn't mean you're guilty for that. But the problem is a lot of these books are then used to say, oh, all of you are guilty for this person's tragic backstory. And a lot of this, when you dig into it, comes from this whole idea of the pedagogy of discomfort and social emotional learning. And the entire purpose of this curriculum, and this is not the podcast for that, but if you want to dig into SEL, the whole point of it is to make children, put children in psychological distress in order to then make them more open to certain types of activism. This is just brainwashing 101, frankly. This is the kind of stuff that went on in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. It's psychologically harmful to children to, to put these kind of ideas in their heads to fill them with guilt, to fill them with shame, and to fill them with fear. And so when we say harmful, I, I think it that's what we mean by harmful. Now, a book that's just broadens your horizons or whatever, that's not quite the same thing. I want to go back to a book you mentioned earlier, though, which is Fahrenheit 451. It is very interesting to me. I, I kind of want to dig into this more. Why was that book banned in different places? Because <laughs> that book is actually predicting What's going on today that we've got a world that's obsessed with virtual reality and, you know, the whole digital avatar culture uh, and just listening to nonsense and noise and not reading, you know, because actually a, a bigger problem today than 10, 20, 30 years ago is just the lack of interest in reading books, period, because we've got the Internet and social media and Fahrenheit 451 pretty accurately predicted that and that all books became contraband and all books had to be burned. But what happened first was that people lost interest in reading and they just didn't want books anymore. And so there was a societal shift and then a totalitarian government took advantage of that. And boy, that does seem very familiar with internet culture today. 
But the reason in that book that books were contraband, all books were illegal to own, is because then the authorities lost control of society, which they were controlling through sort of the bread and circuses of the nonsense noise that you listen to in your headphones or the screens everywhere. And that's what the American Library Association thinks is happening somehow, that if we could just put these controversial books in kids' hands, they'll break free of the bonds of society. What bonds are they talking about? They're often talking about the bonds of natural order. They're not even talking about some totalitarian government like in Fahrenheit 451. And so that's another thing I think that there's a category error, Stephen, that happens with these banned books weeks is that people think we're living in that world <laughs> of, the, of Ray Bradbury's story. I think I agree with most of that. I think it's uh, not so much a case of an organized effort to subvert government, to overthrow, to take over, to bring in a dystopian government and all of that, so much as it is instincts. Uh, I do want to steel man the folks who are conflating certain kinds of banned books. For example, uh, don't make a case to me. I say, don't make a case to me that, well, Fahrenheit 451 should be on the, you know, the, the shelf of a high school public library, for example. Like, well, yes, uh, arguably it should, at least for the higher grades, you know, for little kids. I think that's something we can talk about in our next chapter. But that book is about beliefs and ideas and policy. And a lot of these books are about beliefs and ideas and policy. What, though, are the other books, the sexual books with illustrations of, you know, yeah. detailed sex acts and, and sometimes ones that would be illegal according to our current law right now. And, and Zach, you also mentioned the other books that challenge identity or, or portray one group or another as uh, inevitable offenders. What are those books doing? Those are about ideas and beliefs and policy, yes, but they're also about who you are as a person. These books are trying to explain to you, they're trying to reboot your self-conception literally at the level of your skin, your body, your organs. Like It intends to challenge your entire self-perception, to ask deeply religious questions and to subvert any ideas uh, that have been often called traditional or you know, shared by parents. Like These books, I, I say, are attacking, uh, using Christianese here, the imago dei. The image of God, uh, which is not just a Christian idea, but it, it is an idea common to all of the world's major religions and shared up until fairly recently by even secular society. Uh, this I do call a deeply harmful religious movement and actively harmful uh, because uh, I used the word poison earlier. Uh, these are poisonous. These books are pornographic and they are encouraging perversion. And I, I will give a hot take here. I do think that these books should be banned, 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 banned. Like I would pass at least state laws if I could to say, do not use these books in schools for any grade. Do not print these books. Do not sell these books. I actually do think these should be banned. And I welcome correspondence about that idea. That is my opening bid. Ban these books just like you would like terrible anti-Semitic works uh, or mind camp for any of those things that are just proven to have no redeeming value whatsoever. Now, I don't mean you can't study them, you know, check them out uh, from the restricted section, you know, and, 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 and talk about these ideas so you can figure out what went wrong. But I do want these books off the shelves, just like I would want, you know, how to build a nuclear bomb in 1,578 easy steps, you know, how to build a radioactive bomb. What, what redeeming value is that for that book? What can you possibly yeah. do for that uh, to, to improve the world? Uh, nothing. 
And I think that these books are a lot of the banned books that people are kind of holding in reserve. They're being sentimentalists, some of these activists, and they're trying to get you to agree. Well, of course, you know, somebody's got to be allowed to read Huckleberry Finn or Animal Farm. Uh, but then there's a bait and switch attempt here. Well, oh, if you yes, get to read exactly Huckleberry Finn and uh, Animal Farm, then you ought to be able to read this book over here, you know, about the man and the boy and what they did at night. Like, disgusting. No, you know, and I don't want to just do, you know, another attempt at a viral video here because I'm not the one going to the school board reading these books out loud and, you know, outraging people and getting myself thrown out. I think sometimes for good reasons, by the way, I, I, I basically would support attempts like that just to raise awareness. And by the way, attempts like that do illustrate that we do believe some people need to know about this stuff, but the kids do not. Uh, but I, I would go even further. Like if we could raise awareness about this without actually spreading the material, um, I think I would do that, but I think it is necessary to raise awareness, at least as a stop gap measure, because I do believe it's that serious. And if people believe that uh, these books about hard cases uh, ought to be read to everybody, I think that they are acting out a disproportionate morality at best. I want to assume the best about them. Maybe these folks, whether they're teachers or school board members or ALA activists or political activists or whomever, I think, Zach, that their whole life has been affected by actual hard cases, either in their own past or the past of people they know because of family breakup and toxic, poisonous, sin-corrupted sexuality. I think that they can't see anything but these hard cases. But there is a principle in jurisprudence called hard cases make for bad law. In this case, we got some very bad laws that people are trying to do according to their own positive motives. They're trying to deal with the hard cases. If you read, they give the best reading for it. They're desperate. They want to do something about people who've been abused and need to know about these stories. And they feel like people are in these legalistic environments that won't let them be sexually free or free with their own identities. And so they need to normalize this with books. I call that behavior actually abnormal. And at the absolute worst, I would say that it almost reminds me of the person who's been abused, who then becomes himself an abuser in order to make it normal for himself. The cycle continues. Uh, I view this as just a variant of that at the literary level, and I think it does need to be stopped. And that's probably the hardest core I'm going to be in this episode before we go back to uh, some more questionable books that I don't think should be banned for everybody. Yeah, my, my closing thought for chapter one here is that words are not violence, but certain words, certain books can lead people to consider violence, whether it's just simply a spiritual violence, it's an attack on their soul. Like I said, the books that impute guilt, shame, and fear and make people question their identity and reality. And by the way, I'm talking mainly about books that children have to read in school. I'm not necessarily talking about books in the bookstore that adults can choose to read. I'm talking about the books that kids are told to read for class. So yeah, I, I think we have to safeguard children the other side of this though, Stephen, and I, I don't exactly know how to solve this, but we are in the age of the internet where ever, so many things are available uh, if you have unrestricted internet access, which children should not have, but that's a whole right. other discussion. Well, that's kind of a given when all these yeah. cases come up, they just assume that kids are going to have the internet and they're going to right. learn this. Like, well, maybe they don't need to have the internet on always, all yeah. the time. And isn't that something that we've discovered actually reshapes the neurochemistry? Right. Yes, it does. But yeah, it, so you can make things hard to obtain. You can make things not required or just not available in schools for children. Uh, maybe you can have an age ranking system in public libraries. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the solutions are. You're not going to be able to eliminate 
every harmful idea. It's really just about how do you limit access to these things to people that could be harmed by them because they are developing. Um, so I think that's what we're talking about. But ultimately, when it comes to harmful ideas, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, in my opinion. And so in that school board meeting where that parent read the very sexually graphic book to the, the board members and they, you know, cut the parent off and said, you can't read that in here. Well, that exactly makes the point <laughs> that once you air these things out, you see, okay, this is a bad idea. Children should not be exposed to this. Now, is the correct process to air that out in front of children? Well, no. Children don't need to be involved in every debate that adults have about what's appropriate or, or harmful or, or whatever. Just like we don't show our kids everything happening in the news, right? We don't talk about every horrible tragedy happening around the world. So there, there's a limit to this. And, you know, we, we have to be aware ultimately that we're in a spiritual war. The way that the demonic world comes after us is through ideas, through words. You know, like in the screw tape letters, you can kind of imagine these demons putting thoughts into people's minds, or whether it's through kind of the world system or just our own sinful nature and how we develop these bad ideas into programs and, and all kinds of things, mass media. But we are at a war with ideas. And so our words, violence, will no, a book is not violence, but there is a kind of violence to bad ideas. Bad ideas can harm you in different ways. Exactly. It's not a matter of us disagreeing that words never cause violence. People simply disagree on which kinds of words cause which kinds of violence. Some people think specifically about you know, getting beat up in the street and that's violence. Well, I would broaden the definition to violence against one's own self. Violence with consent against oneself is still a violent thing. And particularly when you get the parents involved in some of these discussions, if there are some parents who think that their kids ought to be able to read these things and that all kids ought to be able to read these things, or more likely there are simply grown-ups who are in institutions who are trying to make these decisions on behalf of other kids, I would then point to a secular term called parentification. That's not a Bible term. It's just a secular term. It's where parents, probably because they are immature themselves and maybe had some uh, neglect or even abuse going on in their own past. Uh, again, it's kind of on that same spectrum. Uh, they seem to think that their kids don't deserve the opportunities that they were denied. So you may as well just go ahead and expose them early on to the same ideas that maybe you wish you were exposed to early on, but only in a safe and healthy way, right? Like, no, not necessarily. Kids don't need to read Song of Solomon, even though it's in the Bible, and they certainly don't need to read uh, these sexually poisonous materials. And frankly, just based on the rot gut going on with the nation's fastest growing religion, sexualityism, I call it. Uh, I don't really think that anybody needs to be exposed to this stuff, uh, much less required uh, to read that uh, in a public school. Well, we also need to go to uh, the next few chapters here, uh, talking about the less hard cases. But first, let's stop by our second sponsor. Brian Timothy Mitchell is back. And once again, his book has been terribly banned. A despicable, vile individual uh, from your past doesn't want you to read this book. This is one of the top 10 books that they don't want you to read. Almost Paradise. Get ready for Almost Paradise. It's the sequel to the award-winning novel Infernal Fall. Yep, I was there. It won a Realm Award uh, just this past July 2023. In this sequel, Daniel may have escaped the Inferno, but hell has followed him home. The devils that stalk him may not know about his magical stone, which can send them back to hell. 
But unfortunately for Daniel, there isn't much power in slinging stones. Meanwhile, heartless Charles is torn between saving his friend and serving his master. If that wasn't enough trouble, an alluring spirit has ensnared him with her charms. Then there's Beau, who is ready to catch a bus bound for heaven, but first he must discover why it's harder to fly than to fall. Find out why on Tuesday, October 24th, with the release of Almost Paradise from author Brian Timothy Mitchell. Get that link in our show notes and then ban it because it mentions the word hell several times. And hell is scary. Uh, hell is hellish. You don't want to read that right now. Zach, I don't think this book is appropriate for my 10-year-old. Probably not appropriate for yours, but it's probably appropriate for listeners to this podcast. And that leads me to chapter two. Many books do deserve caution and discernment, but you can still read them. Just to be absolutely clear, we don't want to ban all books that someone out there somewhere decided should be banned from some library or some classroom, uh, even in our Lorehaven reviews. Uh, that's why we include two little sections at the end of our weekly reviews on Fridays of the best Christian-made fantastical novels we can find. Those little sections are called Discern and Best Four. Now, discern isn't uh, a list of things uh, that will corrupt you and that therefore you should go through uh, with a Sharpie uh, and scratch out of the book or just be scared away from the book altogether. No, we only do mixed positive or positive reviews at Lorehaven. We think this book is worth reading. Uh, it's just some stuff you may want to be aware of, you know, whether it's the occasional swear word, which is kind of uncommon, or maybe more likely a description of violence or maybe some kind of mental health issue going on. That's something you may want to be aware of if you have that reader sensitivity, uh, which is a legit sensitivity in a lot of cases. And then best four also helps you determine for whom the book is best. Uh, we're not going to recommend a middle grade novel uh, for adult female readers, and we're not going to recommend a historical fantasy romance uh, for 10 year olds. Books are meant for certain readers, and we want to be very clear about that. So we don't try to ban books. Uh, we're recognizing reader limitations. And I think that's a better word instead of ban. Uh, with all of the uh, all the heat that accompanies that and all the clickbait nature of it, just say limit. We want to limit books. Now, there's a benign word that actually captures the meaning better. Uh, it's a good faith argument. We should limit this book from this public school library shelf, or we should limit this book from a certain age group. That's perfectly fair and reasonable. And everybody, by the way, believes that some books should be limited like this. We all do. Uh, I'll risk a pitch here for our upcoming sponsor, once again, The Pop Culture Parent. That's partly why I co-wrote this book. Uh, I don't believe in limiting all popular culture from the kids. Uh, you can't do that anyway. But it's not just a practical argument. It's a biblical argument. Uh, we are meant to discern uh, books and culture, stories and songs and games and all of that. We are meant to discern these things in a fallen world that still reflects the fingerprints of God, even if they're uh, really, really smudged in a lot of people, all people actually. And yet I saw that uh, some Christian discernment material, Zach, would occasionally stray into uh, this notion that if your eight-year-old can't read it, then why should anybody read it, really? I mean, it's not clean. If it's not safe for your eight-year-old or your six-year-old, then it's not safe for your 16-year-old or your 26-year-old. And, and that's just, that's the wrong kind of sentimentality. That's not biblical discernment. Uh, it's an imposter. And a lot of resources weren't teaching according to that principle. Uh, they didn't get in that idea that, okay, maybe the little kid can't read it, but maybe as your kid gets older, he or she can read it. Here's how you train your kid to go along with that developmental stage, teaching them how to be mature uh, and maybe to outgrow some sensitivity levels. Uh, little kids shouldn't use matches, but older kids may need to learn to use them. In fact, you almost certainly need to learn to use them. 
so it is with books, uh, you know, book ba- burning uh, puns aside here. But that means that we do need trust in the trainers. Parents are not trusting the public school teachers to make these discernments. Then it makes sense there's going to be some disputes. And I'm sure that some teachers see some hard cases among parents who are letting their kids do all kinds of nonsense. And, you know, they overreact or react. And you just got a lot of uh, a lot of understandable disputes between them. And then Christian readers and fans, as we'll see in the next section, they look in and they can't help making the comparison to their own life stories. But really, we're dealing here with very different situations. Yeah, I'm in several Christian reader groups, Stephen, and oftentimes there are these discussions that happen about certain elements in a Christian authored book. So let's talk about that for a minute. We've talked about sort of the secular books that get all the attention, but within a lot of Christian books, there's a lot of debates about should this element be there or not. And sometimes the conversation, as you said, goes from, I don't want my kid reading that book to no one at any age should read this book and everyone should give it one star reviews on Goodreads and cancel the author from public life. (laughs) And of course, that's going a little too far. I do think, though, that we have to be aware as Christians, you know, we are naturally evangelists, right? We are out there sharing the gospel, but also God's word, like Jesus said, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded, right? At the end of the Great Commission, not just preach the gospel, the good news, Disciple people, make disciples. We all have that instinct as believers. If we love the Lord and if we love his word, we are always trying to teach one another and keep each other close to the Lord. And it can iron sharpens iron. Now, where this gets fuzzy is that works best in a local church, in person where you know people. Exactly. It's about that trust, as I mentioned, yeah. people that you know and trust who actually are looking out for your child and maybe understand your child a little bit, even though you, as the parent, at least generally, will understand your child best of all. Yeah. So I'm very uh, open minded to what my friends in church, my small group, people I know and trust, their opinions about things. Random people on the internet who don't know me, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably not going to take your opinion to the bank about what book. I should or should not read. But let's talk about why these books upset us as Christians, okay? It's kind of three categories I've listed out. One is conflict, two is immorality, three is idolatry. Let's talk about conflict in books. As Christians, we we don't like conflict. We're trying to seek peace between people. So when there's strife, when there's violence, when there's any kind of yelling and shouting and cursing in books, it makes us uncomfortable because we try to live lives without conflict, right? What, what, what does the Apostle Paul say? You know, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So that's what we're always striving for. So when we see conflict, we, we think something's wrong. Well, conflict is just the way of the world, though, and it's all throughout the Bible. So we, we can't really avoid conflict. However, it usually comes down to how graphic are the details with the conflict. Do you show the cuss words? Do you show the bloody corpse of Goliath after he was decapitated by David. Well, no, the Bible doesn't show you that. It just tells you what happened. So is that kind of our limit with fiction? Well, we've, we're not going to get into that because we've discussed that on previous podcast episodes. But th- let's talk about the second thing, immorality. Well, that's, that's a big topic with some of these secular books that they're very graphic and the bedroom immorality that goes on. Well, there's plenty of immorality that we see in the Bible, but it's sort of like a fade to black thing, right? So again, I I think that's a good metric to go by, but this is what we're debating in these Christian groups, right? How much detail is too much? And then the third thing is idolatry, and this is where we get into things like fictional magic 
of course, or fictional gods, like worlds that imagine a different, you know, pantheon of gods or whatever. I want to go back to what Sarah Ella said, though. I, I keep quoting this. She said, look, books either show Christ or they show our need for Christ. And I think that's where we always have to kind of bring our focus back to as, as believers, as parents, as members of the body of Christ. It, it's okay to read you know, books with these elements as long as we're discerning and we're not just swallowing a descriptive idea as a prescriptive command. Zach, I 100% agree. It is an issue of whether for the discerning Christian, the book is calling evil evil which is what Dracula does, which is what Koenig's Fire does, which is with what a lot of Christian-made fantastical novels that we recommend do, or is the book calling evil good? God himself, Almighty God, says woe to them, and if God says woe to you, you better sit up and freak out now, because God says woe to them who call good evil and evil good. I once heard a secular podcaster who got a hold of that verse and you could tell he was being convicted by that, even while he was also applying it to the wrong kinds of people. Uh, and in that case, I think I was on his side. Uh, some of these books will call evil good. And in that case, like maybe a Christian adult doesn't need to be reading that book. There may be better things you could do with that time, with your time. Uh, but certainly kids who are already struggling to determine good from evil, like do you really want to make more work for yourself? Because it is going to be work. Even for an older, uh, you know, prodigy child who's reading the book. Now, I used to read books uh, that had content that I disagreed with. Uh, there was at least one like ancient Russian fairy tales type book. Uh, well, not that ancient, but a few centuries old uh, that did give me nightmares and, you know, give me give me night terrors. And that's the only time I can remember something like that. And in that case, yes, it was wise for my parents to limit that book from me. Uh, and then as I got older, I started reading the newspaper more and I discovered, for example, uh, a comedy writer named uh, Dave Barry, one of the funniest writers. I have a lot of his books. I used to read his columns all the time. Well, I learned a lot about the world uh, from Dave Barry, and <laughs> I wonder if my parents would have uh, taken kindly to some of the stuff I was learning from the Dave <laughs> Barry books I checked out at the library. Maybe I shouldn't have read that book then, but you know, eventually I was going to learn it anyway. And I wouldn't say that I read that you know under age ten. It was more like in my uh, mid to late teen years. Zach, you mentioned earlier, though, Christians discussing in, uh, in a setting of tr mutual trust what books they recommend for each other. Uh, I think you and I both are familiar with one or two uh, social media groups that are like that. And it just so happens that earlier this morning, I saw somebody posting, I'll go ahead and name the book, uh, a bit of a caution about a series that I really enjoy and would still recommend for the appropriate audience. It's a upper middle grade series called The Incredible Worlds of Wally McDougall. Uh, and it's by Bill Myers, uh, who was one of our first podcast guests uh, in episode 27. One of my favorite writers, solid Christian guy, great guy, co-creator of McGee and Me. I uh, really liked and was, say, I would say, even spiritually edified uh, by these books about the extremely klutzy 12-year-old Wally McDougall who gets into all kinds of hijinks even while he's trying to write uh, his own superhero story. So it's a story within a story that's even goofier than the main story. Uh, the parent, however, was very concerned about this series uh, because of a, a reference to people making out at camp uh, and some other references that they felt was inappropriate for the reading audience. Well, some of those uh, may have actually been part of a revision to this series, uh, and the covers uh, make them look almost like a diary of a wimpy kid type book. But I was still thinking, well, I, I was 12 you know, or older uh, when I started reading this series, so more like early teen years. There's nothing that I learned from that book that I didn't already know or from that series that I didn't already know, but I could understand a parent being concerned about it for younger readers. 
And so in that case, uh, it is appropriate for me to say, hey, you know, it worked for me. I didn't notice those references updated or not in the revision uh, for the reprinting. I was fine with those books. They, I found them very edifying and very entertaining, uh, very, very helpful to me just growing up. But you are the parent. You know your child. You know what your kid's going to obsess over. You know what your kid isn't ready to learn about yet. You know, I need to presume that you are trying to do a good job as a parent. Uh, and then you're not being an evil parent who's trying to keep your kid away from the world, uh, as seems to be some of the case with the activists now. Now, are there bad parents out there? Absolutely. You faithful listener may have had bad parents. Uh, in fact, it's almost inevitable that among this audience, there's some bad parents in your past. I get it. I get it. Uh, but we mustn't let that influence us to project our own issues onto this issue. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in uh, chapter three. I'll name one book that I've seen a lot of criticism for that I really loved. And it's a book I've mentioned before. It's the Christ Clone Trilogy by James Bosinger. And the first book is called In His Image. So this came out in the late 90s when the Left Behind fandom was in its heyday. Early 2000s is when I picked it up. You know, there's some reviews on it that say it's blasphemous because, spoiler alert, the book is about making a clone of Jesus from the Shroud of Turin from these living cells that they find there. Your scientists were so concerned about whether or not they could, <laughs> they didn't stop to ask about whether or not they should. Right. Ultimate scenario there. Yes. Yeah. So some, you know, some very sensitive Christians immediately hated this book for that premise. I, I think it's what inspired maybe later editions of this book to come with sort of a disclaimer at the beginning from the author. And he quotes, uh, I think it's Ecclesiastes where it says, the end is better than the beginning. <laughs> and so his point is like, hey, just hang on. Like, trust me that I'm a biblical Christian. I'm imagining something very fantastical, probably impossible, but just, just go with it and let's see what happens. Who does that clone become? You know, it, it's probably, you know, may, maybe not a good guy. Let, let's just leave it at that. That impulse there to sort of be like very impatient. When is the message going to come out? When are you going to preach the truth? Like, how can the bad guys get away with this? Like, what are you doing? Well, look, I, I understand that. I mean, that sentiment is written all over Psalms. Like, why did the evil prosper and the good die young? Like, it's all over the Psalms. I think sometimes it's just a failure to understand the genre of fiction, that it's not saying, hey, let's go clone Jesus from the Shroud of Turin. No, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. And it's clearly showing that this is a bad idea uh, because very bad things happen after that. It's just not obvious right away because the other thing that book does that I really liked is that it follows the non-Christian characters during the end times throughout most of the book. Uh, it does show some Christian characters and their point of view, but for the most of the time, you are following around an unsaved person. And again, this made a lot of Christian readers uncomfortable. They're like, why am I, why are we seeing everything from his perspective? And we're hearing all the anti-Christian propaganda. Like, well, I don't, I don't want to be reading this. This is, this is terrible. This is, it is blasphemy. I mean, it's, there's blasphemous words being spoken by evil people. The whole point is we have to duck behind enemy lines sometimes and understand how we're being attacked. In scripture, it says we are not unaware of the devil's schemes, you know, that we know that he prowls around like a roaring lion. That's the whole point of the screw tape letters, you know, just imagining what do you think the devil is teaching you now, just because you have that element doesn't mean it's something wrong. But as you said, Stephen, the real danger in a book is when it goes from teaching you about, you know, immorality or conflict and idolatry in teaching you to 
do these things, calling evil things good and prescribing them for people. I think that in the Christ clone trilogy, the titular clone spoiler alert turns out to be the Antichrist. I thought that was pretty obvious going in. (laughs) I read the first book a long time ago, never got to books two and three. I'm guessing because they were banned by terrible Christians who were left behind partisans. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I was feeling the partisanship back then, though, Zach. And plus, they got the rapture all wrong. The only biblically acceptable rapture belief is the kind where people vanish before the tribulation. I think he had like actually souls snatched out of body. So there was just yeah. like a bunch of bodies piled up and that's not how the rapture works. <laughs> uh, everybody knows that. And, and it, there's only one way to view the timing there. Uh, anyway, this is not the end times episode, <laughs> but I, I think some really great points there, uh, specific, specifically some cautions, lest we do overcorrect so much because they are trying to feed poison to the kids uh, and then maybe we start getting a little high off our own fumes and go back to some dumb band uh, book bands that were the bad kind or maybe we are not uh, allotting that authority to people who actually know what they're talking about we'll get to that in chapter three but first off i mentioned earlier the pop culture parent it's our third sponsor as well this is the nonfiction book about popular culture and how to train your kids to explore it for the glory of God, not just for entertainment, not just to distract them in the other room while you get the more important work done because it's just a cartoon and it really can't hurt anybody uh, or, or else to fear all the cartoons and turn them off and only make your kids read missionary biographies. Uh, Ted Turneau and Jared Moore and I wrote this book uh, to help explain the purpose of popular culture. What is the purpose of that book? Whether or not your kids should be limited from it. Uh, What is it for uh, in God's universe, which this is, and that's where we're living and that's where we're serving and that's where we're supposed to be worshiping God and uh, hopefully sharing the gospel with the neighbors uh, as the church. Well, popular culture is part of our mission and it will be part of the real world that your kids are called to serve for the glory of Christ. So best train them for engaging these stories. We have five handy questions to help you start doing that. Uh, not only seeding out the ideas for little kids, but then uh, getting a little more structured with the older kids as they develop. That's in the Pop Culture Parent. Uh, It's published by New Growth Press. We'll put, of course, uh, that link in the show notes and then go to the link at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right. Chapter three, we only debate who should limit books and why. So this is really what the debate is about. It's not a binary choice. Banned books? Yes or no. Choose wisely. No. We all believe some books should be limited, which is the better uh, faith uh, interpretation of the word banned. It's just a matter of who is the, the legitimate authority to limit these books for whom and what are the reasons. As I mentioned earlier, some books should, I think, be banned for almost everybody, almost any time. You don't need the bomb making book. You don't need the, uh, you know, for dummies guide to anti-Semitic uh, activism. You don't need that. It's gross. It's racist. Stop it. Uh, But other books arguably shouldn't be banned, but do deserve some caution and maybe limited for certain reader sensitivities or age levels. Uh, Here's an example, though, Zach. I always like to ask a bit of a trick question, which I asked a few weeks ago, actually, on my social media. Oh, so we want more people to read a book by an author named Ryan T. Anderson, a nonfiction book called When Harry Became Sally. Is that the type of banned book you're talking about? Well, no, that's a book that should have been banned, say the activists, because it's hate speech. Oh, so you do believe in banned books. It's just a matter of why and which titles and for whom. Well, to this day, you cannot get When Harry Became Sally from Amazon. So if you're going to talk about a book that has actually been banned, that actually is a leading contender for the banned books. And at the same time, 
I don't think that book should be in the elementary schools. I still think that book should be limited, just not actively censored from everybody. Yeah. And what people pointed out at the time was that while you couldn't buy that book on Amazon, in fact, I'd bought it, but I bought it, had to buy it directly from the publisher. At the same time, Amazon was still selling Mein Kampf. Ah, uh-huh. Hitler. Right. So apparently they've made a value judgment. You should be able to read a book by literally the guy who killed millions of Jews. Thanks literally to his Hitler. third Reich. Yeah. Literally Hitler. Uh, this is the, <laughs> this is the Godwin's law, uh, live and in person, yeah. uh, but you, you can't get when Harry became Sally, which by the way, I, I still haven't read it, uh, but it apparently is the most kind scholarly non-reactionary treatment of the subject oh, uh, yeah. before it got so reactionary. Absolutely. And here's another example of banned books. A Canadian high school in, um, I can't pronounce this, I'll just say Ontario. Are the, are the Canadians being Canadian yeah. again? God yes. bless you, Canada. But, oh, Canada. They have removed all books published prior to 2008 because of equity. There just weren't enough people with a certain skin color that wrote books uh, before that. And there were too many people of another skin color that wrote books published before 2008. So, to make everything equitable, only books published in the last few years when publishers became very DEI conscious are going to be stocked at this library. They could have put new books there. They, they would have had plenty of space. It's just so bizarre. What was wrong with these books? You're saying because the authors belong to a certain demographic, the books are automatically problematic and banned? Like This was the most probably bizarre case I've seen and of a library banning books, all while saying, hey, you should read banned books. <laughs> now, Zach, I hadn't read that article, but at just first glance or just first time hearing about it, I might reluctantly concede, you know, given what I don't know about uh, how Canada works with its public education, I might reluctantly concede that maybe the school technically is allowed to do that. I mean, after all, isn't that what American parents are asking for with schools removing the porn from the bookshelves? I don't like it. It is a bad decision. Uh, it's uh, morally disproportionate, uh, at least from what you've told me. But maybe technically they are allowed to do it. So it is a question, though, about who should be allowed to do this. It, you know, okay, maybe they're allowed to do it, but I don't think Amazon should be allowed. It is bad. I mean, no, they're technically a private business and all that, but it is bad for them to ban this book. Well, because uh, they're a monopoly. Because, let's just well, exactly. Let's just it, it is a monopoly, honestly, yeah. and there's actually a suit going on right now, right, about Amazon. And I'm I'm guessing everybody here has shopped at Amazon and/or is getting, uh, you know, credits for uh, from Amazon for uh, recommending books. And <laughs> Lorehaven is no exception. Full disclosure, uh, but they do kind of own all the things. And you know, shop local uh, this holiday season if you can. But sometimes Amazon is just the best place to get stuff, unless of course it is the nonfiction book When Harry Became Sally by Ryan T. Anderson not a sponsor of the show. My argument here is that some people may have technically the legal right to make these choices for what books to limit and why, but they lack the moral proportion to choose wisely. For example, uh, a lot of the crusaders against this uh, Anderson book, like I am pretty sure they told a whole heaping pile of lies to Amazon uh, and, you know, using the back channels to their employees and their activists about what was actually in this book and what kinds of supposed harm this book would cause. Yeah, there was no illegal content in this book. There, there was no, in there. There's nothing yeah. immoral from all that I could tell. And a lot of the activism we're seeing now, a lot of the disputes, uh, people are treating Christian and or conservative parents as villains. Yes. Those moral priorities are 
disordered. And I will go a little further there. I alluded to this earlier, but this is me trying maybe to steal man, maybe risking what Lewis called bulverism. So I want to be careful with this. I, I first debunk the ideas before I start talking about someone's tragic backstory. But I think, Zach, there's a lot of people out there with tragic backstories. A lot of people who've had family trauma or are surrounded by family trauma, and maybe they feel like they want to be a hero and help those people. Uh, there's so much family breakup and division and disorder that, I, again, I think is a case of people using hard cases to make bad law effectively. The teachers, the activists, whatever, like they seem unable to imagine a scenario where a healthy Christian or culturally conservative family could want to limit these books for a good reason. To these activists, like, everybody's kids needs to read this book because everybody's kids are going through what I went through or what my friends went through. And I found these kinds of books healthy, or I think I would have found these kinds of books uh, you know, healthy to normalize my experience. So therefore, everybody should read the book. Well, you know, I'm going to come in and say, I don't think anybody should read the book because I think that reading that book and normalizing the behavior is at best an evasion a suppression of the real harm that that person suffered. And at worst, it is perpetuating more of the same cycle of abuse, cycle of dysfunction, attacking your very body, attacking your very self-conception uh, as an image bearer of God. I really don't see any way to compromise on this one other than one side has to win. Neither can live while the other survives. So real quick, though, I do want to apply this specifically to our audience uh, before we start drawing to a close here. I think that when some Christians, many Christians, because we're supposed to be empathetic, we're supposed to be kind and caring and compassionate and understand that there's a lot of hurting, wounded people out there. I think that many Christians, and that goes double if you're a more creative Christian who likes to read a lot, or maybe you like to write your own fantasy stories and such. I think that we are vulnerable to emotional bribes from these activists. And here's what I mean. Uh, if I think that the best way uh, for kids or grownups or whomever to recover from abuse is to have that experience in some way normalized, then I'm going to come along and I'm going to hack other people's empathy. And, and by hack, I, I mean, you know, like, like a life hack, you know, I think that I can come along and say, you know what, Christians or conservatives, like people from sheltered backgrounds, like you and I are not so different. Uh, you too have had mean people come along and try to keep you from reading good books. You, Christian or conservative, have also suffered uh, legalism. And so here's the Faustian bargain. I'm going to make you feel like you're fighting legalism, like the kind you grew up with. If you participate in banned books week, or, or you say that everybody should read banned books. And in return, here's the deal though you got to let me get these books through to the kids, even if they're poisonous, even if they have sexual artwork and explicit descriptions that children aren't ready for or no one should be buying into. Uh, that's the bargain. And I think that it, uh, it gets done under the cover of, well, we don't want to keep teenagers from reading Huck Finn or Fahrenheit 451, but watch the switch. Watch the little magic act, little sleight of hand there. And by the way, I think it's really about the bigger issue of the emotional bribe. Don't take the emotional bribe. Don't let that person influence your emotions without having rightfully earned it. The banned books issue, wherever it pops up, isn't about your personal backstory. It's not about my personal backstory. It's not about how my parents wouldn't let me read Harry Potter when it was actually a good book. Uh, it's not about my parents doing anything. 
these are different issues, different people's parents, different people's stories, other issues of authority and who should be banning the books and why or limiting the books and why. Yeah, I think we have to watch out for another narrative that comes with these banned book campaigns, which is the statement that, oh, people that want to get rid of these books are just trying to protect their own power and their cultural hegemony. Oh, that, that's over too. That, that's an attempted yeah. hack for people who have suffered under abuse of power and yeah. are acting like all power is bad power. Well, well I mean, and, it's a powerful statement to make there. And as you said at the beginning, the head of the American Library Association is a literal out and proud Marxist. And this is the Marxist way of sowing societal discord. They're saying, oh, if you belong to this group, this other group over here hates you. So you better not do anything they want. They don't have any good ideas. They're terrible. You're the good guys. You're the victims. They're the evil oppressors. You know, that's just a very divisive uh, approach to all of this. I, I just looked at the ALA's website, Stephen. If you, you look through their top 10 most banned books, almost every single one of them, it's for sexual content. Always ask, what are the books that right. they're complaining about being banned? Is there something similar? Is there a shared characteristic? Mm. What, what's going on? Why is this only ever going one way? Hey, Zach, yeah. is Ryan T. Anderson's When Harry Became <laughs> Sally on there? Nope. Okay. What about any other culturally conservative book? Yeah. The uh, Bible's that, not there. Okay. Well, the Bible's not there. Hey, the Bible <laughs> gets banned a lot, you guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean you should read it. You should read it because it's the word of God. But the Bible's not on there. Um, what about Pilgrim's Progress? I'm sure someone's tried to ban that. No, no. They only care about certain kinds of, like I said, they just okay. care about certain ideas. something more neutral. Groups. What about yeah. the Harry Potter books? Now, some Christians got out of control in the 90s, as we saw in our J.K. Rowling episode with Marion Jacobs, and they did try to take those off the school shelves, and that set some bad precedent, as that podcast explains. Is, yeah. is the Harry Potter series on there? No, it's not. I, I uh -huh, touch it's not cool anymore. Yeah. Okay. I want to touch on that and what you said a minute ago, which is that what we're talking about is parents having a voice at their school and saying, this is what we want our kids to focus on. We, our kids can't read every book there is. We want to be part of the decision-making process of what they are going to read and what they're not going to read. Guess what? That's just called democracy. That that's exactly what it is. It's representative democracy. You vote for the board members, the board members make the decisions and you get a voice, dear parent, on how those decisions are made. You know what else it's called, Zach? Engaging the culture. Yeah. There's a lot of Christians who at once complain about Christians who abandoned a certain area of popular culture or government or business or big Hollywood or music or whatever. But then they also seem to want Christians to engage the culture without these kinds of conflicts. Guys, sometimes that is what engagement means. I don't mean culture war, but engage does mean that there are going to be very hard cases like this. People are going to put up a fight. They, they don't want the Christians to engage. They, they want to have their own way. Their own uh, beliefs win out. Uh, engaging the culture means there will be some conflict. So sometimes Christians need to leave because it's too far gone and, and you got to move out or homeschool your kids or private school or whatever. And then sometimes it's worth it to stay and try to influence because that's part of the Christian's call as a citizen, if not a missionary in their world. Yeah. And how we do that obviously matters. You Absolutely. Know, we, we have to behave ourselves in Christ-like ways. But just because we're voicing opinions, objecting to things, running for school boards, trying to influence parents a certain way, none of that is unchristlike. That is part of teaching them to obey all that I've committed. Now, obviously, He's in Matthew 28, he's talking about Christians. Okay. 
So there is a limit sometimes, and there is a scope to our influence. We, we may not be able to influence other people towards our values. We, ha- we may have to find common ground. But guess what? I've found a lot of common ground at our school with a lot of Muslim parents. We have a lot of the same cultural and moral concerns about protecting our children and raising them a certain way with certain values that may not be shared by other parents at our school uh, who are not religious. Well, look, that's just part of living in a very pluralistic, whatever, multicultural society, whatever you want to call it. And we have to learn how to work that out and get along. You can speak up at your school. You can talk to your teachers. You can do it in a kind way. You can do it in a gracious way. But we do have to speak up for truth. We do have to speak up for children because let's not forget what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, again, it's it's that phrase to sin or teaches them to sin or to, or in other translations, right. calling teaches them good to evil. Yeah. Yeah. Or calling evil good. Yes. So it so we're not talking about books that simply depict sin or conflict or things like that. It's books that teach children to do these things. Right. Which is the purpose of the public school. They, they are meant to be teachers. It's not simply a, a microcosm of a representative republic. Like, no, no, they're they're children. That's it's school. They're supposed to be you know, mentors. They're supposed to be mentees. You know, they're supposed to be the trainers. And, and we're supposed to, at least in theory, like come together in a common ground. You know, Christian parents, Muslim parents, secular parents, parents who just don't care. Any of those ought to be able to operate in a pluralistic society, or at least that has been the original idea. But Zach, as you mentioned earlier, the problem is with some of these worst books is there are billion dollar efforts to redefine our shared, relatively shared understanding of human nature at the policy level and at the cultural level. And so long as that is going on, like we didn't start the fire. This is a response to this activistic effort. Uh, if activist, uh, activism effort, uh, activistic, I'm not even sure that's a word. I should read more books that haven't been banned. There is a culture conflict here. And to understand how to engage that, go back to our episode about that. Uh, this is a sequel to that episode now, uh, now that I mention it. At the same time, I do want to maybe, as we draw a close here, recognize uh, that we do know, I'm sure Zach, like there are some librarians, teachers, like, people out there who are probably already uh, stressed enough as it is. And they Absolutely. themselves are being subject to this huge marketing or cultural push to uh, poison the libraries and poison the teaching materials with this material. And I know that if people are under the stress and, you know, they're under budget and, you know, the classrooms are crowded and, you know, the students are a mess and you feel uh, constrained by the bureaucracy at the library, the school or whatever, like even a faithful Christian or even just a decent teacher or librarian, I'm sure doesn't need any more conflict. Uh, Zach, you mentioned uh, in the episode where you went to the library, you know, I uh, think somebody looking kind of harried at all the people who are packing into this library. And even then I was asking, okay, isn't this a little bit of a grift, you know, all due respect uh, to a publisher or Kirk Cameron or whomever, but there's going to be some grifting here. And by grifting, we mean, you know, people trying to sell you a culture war, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're selling you weapons to fight this. And, you know, they're, they're kind of mercenaries. Well, yes, this does happen. And in that case, then I'm sure a lot of Christian uh, librarians or teachers or even pastors or pundits, you know, some of them may be looking at this and thinking, this is just a big grift. It's not dangerous. I will recognize that, yeah, there's some grifting going on. But again, please keep in, in perspective 
proper moral proportion. What's worse? The grift in which people on this side of the right-wing culture war are trying to sell you stuff even if they don't believe in it themselves, or the abject sexualityist poison that can get into books. I think the poison is the worst element, although, you know, if you're so-called, you should be combating both. I don't like grift uh, from people who don't believe in this, and I certainly don't like uh, the poison for kids. But I think the application here is, is don't go after all the librarians and all the teachers any more than some of them go after all the parents. Like there are good people at schools, good people. Yeah. Practice good faith, practice culture, just war. Don't fire on a friendly and certainly don't fire on a civilian. That's a war crime in the culture war. Don't do it. Be careful. Don't act like everybody is part of this terrible million dollar or billion dollar cabal. Uh, some people are just caught in the crossfire. And so I think even if people are going to their school boards or, you know, maybe trying to engage the culture in a right way, like stay under the radar. Uh, don't break the rules. Don't be outrageous. You know, don't just try to be a social media reactionary. Don't use this to build your clout. It really ought to be about rightful engaging of the world. And it also, I think, Zach, ought to be about rightful understanding of what books are for. Uh, don't go in with some of these old um, pseudo-Christian or just traditional ideas uh, that we only ought to have family-friendly books for readers from age uh, 6 to 96. That's not appropriate either. The Bible itself couldn't meet this standard. Even good cultural conservative resources couldn't meet this standard. Uh, that's not the standard we ought to be upholding. Uh, there are questions of wisdom here. It gets tricky, especially when you're talking about books that are appropriate for some readers or some reader ages. And it especially gets tricky when you're talking about who has the legitimate authority to limit these books. That opens it up for further conversation. Uh, this episode certainly uh, cannot end uh, every single discussion. So we look forward to what you think about it. Email podcast at lorehaven.com. We won't censor you. We won't block you. And we won't broadcast you unless you say it's okay. Of course, you can also go to the Lorehaven Guild and leave us your thoughts there about this episode or tag us on the socials. Look for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, something else to keep in mind just in closing is the idea of Chesterton's fence, which is this little parable G.K. Chesterton told about, suppose you walk across a field and you run into a fence, and you can have this instinct of, why is this stupid fence here? I don't want it here. Uh, What were they thinking putting it here, and you want to just get rid of it? Well, you don't know the history of that fence. You don't know who put it there or why. There could be dangerous animals on the other side of it. There could be, you know, uh, livestock on your side, and this is keeping them in. It could be keeping danger out or keeping good things in. Uh, and so first, what you should do before you destroy the fence is go back and find what the use of it is. And Stephen, I thought about this as I was researching for this episode and I was watching videos about sort of the history of banned books and the most banned books of all time. You know, and there's this narrative that it sells you, which is look at all these stupid people throughout all history getting rid of books. What are they thinking? Why did Noah, these idiot parents, wanted their kids to read this book? And it's like, how about we find out what their concerns were and then actually evaluate those concerns and talk about it and have a conversation rather than just have this hubris like, I know better than all those parents. Sometimes what is being objected to is objectionable. And that's what we have to use discernment for. Exactly. And if J.K. Rowling, as we saw in our past episode about that, can show empathy and compassion to people who wanted to ban her own books for dumb reasons, arguably inaccurate reasons, if she can show empathy and compassion for them, 
then I think that some of us can show empathy and compassion for the people who have concerns about other kinds of books and may rightly want to limit them from certain kinds of readers for good reasons. Well, what are your thoughts, dear listener, about banned books? And are they the forbidden fruit that promises you all the wildest dreams can come true? <laughs> or is it books that should be banned and read by no one? What are your thoughts? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment anywhere you see Lorehaven on social media or, best of all, in our Lorehaven Guild, our exclusive Discord server. We got a comment from the last episode about The Wizard of Oz in our tribute to my sister Nicole, who was a Wizard of Oz super fan. And we got this comment uh, from Sheriff who said, the longing for home that you mentioned in this episode is mentioned in several hymns and Christian songs, but two in particular are Home Where I Belong, sung by B.J. Thomas, and directly related to The Wizard of Oz, a song called The Land of Ooze and Oz by Reba Rambo. And uh, Sheriff links to those songs there, so we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. and. You, our listener, can go listen to those. We just can't play them on the podcast for copyright reasons. But thank you so much, Cher, for sending that. That's really cool to see a Christian hymn related to that book. Meanwhile, things are picking back up at Lorehaven. The reviews have restarted. And last Friday, we published a review of the fantasy debut, The Eternity Gate from Catherine Briggs. That's available now at lorehaven.com. This coming Friday, after today's release date, we have a new review of a classic-ish sci-fi. It's actually some novelettes that were put together. Very interesting origin story there. A science fiction novel called Moonchild Rising. You'll want to get that review this coming Friday. Uh, subscribe free and you will get those reviews, new podcast episodes, should you choose, articles, news, anything that we put up at Lorehaven that you want to hear from in your inbox. Just subscribe free at lorehaven.com. We will also then send you the invitation code to join the Lorehaven Guild. That's our castle in the cloud, our Discord server. Right now we're going through a book quest for the book Koenig's Fire, and we do a new book quest for Christian fantastical novels, a new one every month. Next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of which, what could be more frightening this spooky season than the most wicked regime from real history? They're the ones who often get their books banned, and rightfully so. Only in this historical fiction, the Nazis are hiding in a Romanian prison mine where they try to torture their victims. That is, until a mysterious enemy in the dark forest rises up to destroy them with zombie-like plant creatures, a granite face, and a whole lot of supernatural symbols and literary references. Pastor and paranormal novelist Mark Schooley, author of Koenig's Fire, joins us to explore the problem of evil versus the amazing grace of our sovereign God. Meanwhile, please try to censor this podcast. We want more listeners. No, in all seriousness, uh, don't base your life and what you read or what you listen to on whether some bad guy out there wants to keep you from doing it. That's not a good reason to enjoy stuff. The best reason to enjoy stuff is not in reaction to the bad guys, but in order to glorify God positively. That's why he lets us have good books or challenging books, movies, story songs, any of those things. It's not just to get back at some villain, but in order to glorify him and enjoy him forever as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>